It was a winter day in 1943. There were 903 troops and four chaplains, including an alumnus from Moody. Uh, that man's name was Lieutenant George Fox. And all of these men together boarded the SS Dorster. World War II was in full swing, and the ship was headed across the icy Atlantic in, in, in the winter, and they were coming up, knew they were going to be going into an area where German U-boats were known to lurk about. And about 12 in the morning, on February the 3rd, a, a, a German torpedo ripped into the ship, and with cries of, she's going down, the men began scrambling about for the lifeboats. And a, a young GI crept up to one of the ca uh, chaplains, one of the four chaplains that was on the boat, and, and he said, I've lost my life jacket. And the chaplain said, here, take this, handing the soldier his own life jacket. And before the ship sank, each chaplain ended up giving their life jacket for, for another man. The boat went down. And the heroic chaplains linked arms and lifted their voices in prayer as, as the boat went under the icy water. Lieutenant Fox and his fellow pastors were later awarded posthumously the Distinguished Service Cross. That's an amazing act of, of love. You may think, well, that's, that's what a chaplain should do for, for the troops. And yet, you find in that illustration um, exactly what Jesus says, greater love hath no man than this, than he lay down his life for, for his friends. And that is absolutely true. We see the Lord Jesus doing that for us. We, we see these chaplains doing that for for at least four of these 903 men. Laying down your life is not just in physical terms, but, but it can be in other terms as, as well. As Christians, we're, we're called to live not for ourselves, but, but for others. We're called to lay down our lives for, for our friends. Um, in the scope or in the... the the circle of laying down your life first, you do that for your, your own personal family. If you're married, you have a wife, a husband, or children. We watched a marriage ceremony yesterday where it was emphasized to, uh, to the couple that, that they, they, they arrived as two and they leave as one. And part of that, that requirement, part of that covenant commitment is that you would give up your very life for, for now you're your covenant partner. We're to lay down our lives, obviously, for our wives, for our husbands, for our children. You've heard the statement before the husband said to, to uh, the father said to his son, uh, you know, um, if you ever have to pick between, between you, son, or, or your mother, rest assured I'm going to pick your mother. I chose her. I didn't have any choice about you. It, your relationship you should have a greater commitment and bond to your covenant partner than you do even your own children. And yet, even in the animal kingdom, you find animals that don't even have souls will, will protect their, their young. One of the ways you can see the wickedness and evil human heart coming out in the world today where we discard children as if they're, they're meaningless in the, in the family and in the husband and then with children. And then beyond that, where's the next level that you lay your life down for? Well, the Bible would say it's the church. You might think normally it's unbelievers. And while you should lay down your life for unbelievers, you, you should first lay down your life for, for your other brothers and sisters in Christ because unbelievers are watching. And as we'll even see today, they view the way you treat one another as Christians. They evaluate whether it's good to be a Christian or not. They can conclude, well, it would be better to be an unbeliever than a Christian because of the way that Christians treat each other. So you have your, your spousal relationship, and then you have your family, and then you have the church, and then there's the, there's the world at, at large. You lay down your life 
for, for other people. That's what a Christian is called to do. You take up your cross. You die daily. You, you, you set aside your own selfish desires, which come so naturally, so easily, and, and you take up the desires and even the needs of, of other people. And Christians are called to lay down, lay down their lives for others. And that can be in the form of giving up a life jacket, but it also can be in the form of giving up your time, giving up your resources, giving up your energy. And as we're going to see this morning, it can even be in exercising our liberties for the good of, of others. In light of July 4th coming up, it doesn't fall conveniently, as Pastor Brody told us. We do the fireworks on Thursday night. It's coming right in the middle of the week. And so we're going to take the next two Sundays and do a mini-series on, on Christian freedom. And we're going to look at exercising our freedom this morning in love and, and how we, we apply our understanding of freedom to each other next week. This morning is, is all about love, which is why I started with that that illustration. And I think normally we think of the concept of sacrificial love, we think in terms of like the chaplains, and, and I'm not digging anything away from that. They deserve that, that cross, that, that medal, and, and then some. There's something, their lives are, and even their deaths are what we should, we should emulate. But Romans 14 is going to show us that one of the clearest ways that we express love for one another, is how we exercise our personal liberty. In Romans 14, the chapter instructs us about things that are not specifically commanded or specifically prohibited in Scripture. Everyone should have the same perspective whenever it comes to the commands of Christ and, and what God prohibits. Because anything God commands is for your good, and anything He prohibits is, is to bring you joy. Everyone should have the same point of view there, because the Scripture is black and white. It's crystal clear. There are things in the Bible that no one should argue about. And yet we find people arguing about the definition of marriage and homosexuality and all those other things. That's not because the Bible is unclear about that. That's because individuals want to believe what they want to believe and not believe the clarity of Scripture. If you're committed to the Bible, if you are a Christian, Jesus is your Savior, but He's also your Lord. And how do you know what the Master commands you to do. You go to His Word. That's how you live under the Lordship of Christ. He's not just your get-out-of-hell-free card. He's your Master. He's your Savior. Your eyes have been opened to the fact that you were living in rebellion against God, living your own way, and now you see Him and who He is, and you repent, and you begin to follow Him. You're a disciple, a follower of Christ. And, and what do you follow? You don't follow what I say. Although I'll strive to give you great counsel, you don't follow what your, your grandparents or elders or anyone else, you follow what Christ says, the Bible states. And it's very clear. And the Bible is filled with black and white. The human heart hates black and white whenever it rubs up against what it wants to do, right? I mean, we, we don't like it. We don't like the speed limit. You want to go just over the speed limit until... You see the state trooper coming, and then immediately you hit the brakes. It's part of life. The Bible is black and white. It's very clear. But there's also a number of things that God has left in His wisdom and in His providence for you to work out under the direction of the Spirit and in your conscience. There are things the Bible says you are free to do, and you will be free to do them in your heart, and other people will not be free to do those same things. And how you exercise your liberty in those matters is directly related to love. It's directly related to whether you are laying down your life for another believer, whether you are preferring one another or preferring your... Uh, your, yourself. Romans 14 instructs us about things that are not specifically commanded or prohibited. Look at Romans 14, verse, verse 1. 
Now, this is next week's sermon, but it sets the context. It says, Receive one who is weak in the faith. Do not dispute over doubtful things. Um, the word literally means opinions. It's, it's not things that are commanded or prohibited, but these are things that are application of principles. These are convictions. These are not commands. You're not to, you're not to dispute over those things. These are not matters that the Bible is clear about. What's coming in chapter 14 of Romans are not things that the Bible is clear about, but areas that He's left for us to apply in submission to the Spirit within the boundaries of our conscience. And as we're going to see today, the way you do that, the way you relate to one another, the way you apply your liberties and even your conscience to each other, is a matter of love. It's a matter of following Christ. It's a matter of being selfless or selfish. It's a matter of being like those chaplains, or it's a matter of, of keeping the life jacket on yourself. And, and we, we get it. We've talked about this before. We even preached this this chapter before, back in 1990, I'm sorry, back in 2006, I was adding a decade. We're influenced by our backgrounds, our family upbringing, our former unsaved lives, and now we're all placed together in the church. And it's in the church that we run into some of those differences. And in those situations, your love is put to the test. Your liberty is not put to the test. Your love is put to the test. That's Paul's point of this, of this chapter. It's not about the preference. It's about the brother or, or the sister. And the church at Rome was struggling with this. I mean, did you ever think about that all of the things that are written in the Bible are there because another Christian or another church was struggling with the same thing. Don't be discouraged when you see sin or difficulty or struggles in your life when the Bible addresses it, because that, if the fact the Bible addresses it tells you that you're not alone. We're not alone. Okay? God, God saw that it would be so normative in the Christian life that He would want to inscripturate it. He'd want to place it in the Bible forever for everyone to see. That's how common Romans 14 is. This is not a matter that just came about whenever the worship wars took place back in the 80s with music. This goes all the way back to the time of Christ. And it's in the Bible because it's a normal thing for Christians to struggle with applying love in these, in these matters. And the church at Rome is struggling with this, so Paul addresses how we're to love each other in the midst of that. He doesn't say become a big... 500-pound marshmallow with nobody having any convictions. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say even let go of your convictions. As a matter of fact, he says don't violate your conscience. Hold on to your convictions. He's talking about how believers relate in love when those principles seem to conflict. And there were those in Rome saying, Paul, you need to correct those libertines. People running around here doing all kinds of things and they need to get serious about their walk with the Lord and they're too loose. They need to clean their lives up. And, and Paul will say to them, that's unloving. You're being unloving because you're evaluating your brother on faulty standards. There are also those in Rome, the ones that we're going to look at today, that says, Paul, you, you really need to pour it on those legalists. They need to understand their freedom in Christ. And God says to, to them, you're being unloving because you're, re, you're placing your desires above your brother's good. Well, that's what we're going to look at today. We have personal liberty in matters not commanded and not condemned, but how you handle that liberty in the light of others is a matter of, of, of love. Let me say it this way. We have liberty in these things, but because that liberty is lived out in relationship with others, you must exercise it with responsibility. Everybody wants to be free, right? But freedom, with freedom, there's cost. I mean, that's what we're going to be celebrating as a nation. We love to be free, but with freedom comes responsibility. 
and there was cost that brought it about. You are free in Christ, but with that freedom comes responsibility. And there will be cost to your own personal desires to be able to exercise that liberty, and doing so is, is loving. We're going to begin reading in verse 13 of Romans 14. And I'm going to do something that is contrary to what what is my nature. My nature would be to cover the first part of Romans and then go to the second part. But I really feel led of the Lord to start here first. Romans 14 is broken into two sections, and we're going to look at the second section. And that begins in verse 13. We'll cover the other half next week. He says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, or judge this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and I am convinced by the Lord, by the Lord Jesus, that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. There's your conscience. Don't violate it. Yet if your brother, notice the terms that he's using here, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. And there's the love connection. You're no longer living in love, operating in love. Do not destroy with your food that food which is not unclean. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be evil spoken of, or spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved of men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things are pure but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Three steps there, or three hoops, if you will. Do you have faith? Wonderful, Paul would say. Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. You're not under the law. We are regulated by a much higher standard than the law, and that's, that's love. Rich did a great job talking about Galatians 6, 1 and 2 on Wednesday night, about what fulfilling the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens looks like. Your liberty is, is vertical. You are free in Christ. You are under Christ Jesus. You're, you're no longer under the, the law, the Mosaic covenant. You don't abide by the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law. God sees you as free, not condemned in Christ. That's vertical. But that liberty is exercised on a, on a horizontal plane. And the standard that you keep between one another is the standard of, of love. As love for Christ regulates our conscience in matters of principle, love for others regulates how we exercise that. And so, in this second half of Romans 14, I'm going to show you two responsibilities of love in exercising liberty. Two responsibilities of love in exercising liberty. Exercised by the law, it looks like bondage. Exercised in love, it looks like voluntary restraint to Christ. The first responsibility is to evaluate our liberty in light of our brother's good. It's pretty straightforward. If you would at verse... 13, he says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather judge this or resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our, in our brother's way. 
It's interesting in verse 13, Therefore let us not judge, and but rather resolve. That's the exact same word in the original. It's... In one sense, in that same verse, it's used positively and negatively. What comes to your mind whenever you hear the word judge? Do you think positive or negative? Negative, because the world has groomed you to think negative. Judge not, lest you be judged. Yeah. He is without sin, let him cast the first stone, which they're basically saying, let me live however I want to live and destroy myself, and don't you ever tell me about it. How unloving it's not, it is to not tell sinners what will damn their souls. That is unloving. That's the most unloving thing, not allowing them to continue to run headlong into hell. So, in one sense, you're, dis- you're called as believers to discern. That's the positive sense. In another sense, the word judge does carry a negative connotation where you evaluate somebody else and sit in condemnation over them. You take the seat of God. You don't evaluate them in order to bring about good in their life. You evaluate them and what they're doing in order to condemn them. That's the negative part. That's what you're not to do. But it looks the same. The evaluation part typically looks the same. I mean, you have to draw conclusions. You have to evaluate lives. You have to, you have to evaluate. But the motive is different. And the reason that you can't judge in the sense of, of declaring condemnation on somebody is because you can't do what God does when God sees the heart. He sees the motives. All we've got is the fruit. And sometimes our fruit inspection is wrong. But we're still called to inspect fruit, right? Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits. I mean, it's not just sit back and say, well, you know, I mean, who am I? You know, I can't. You know, you're called to discern. You're called to draw conclusions. And you're called to do that based on evaluating your own life and evaluating the lives of others. But the motive for that is good. It's for their, their good. And you're acknowledging when you do that, I'm not perfect, I can't see the heart. And so Paul says, I'm not worried. In First Corinthians, I'm not worried about being judged by you. I don't know of anything against me, but I don't even say that that's the final conclusion for my own self because I may even judge myself wrong. I'll wait till the final judgment when Christ evaluates me. So one's positive and one's negative. Negatively, it means to sit in an evaluation over someone and draw a conclusion and render condemnation. Positively, it means to make a careful and thoughtful Decision to discern a matter. And that's the way it's used here in the second part of the verse. He says, therefore, let us not sit in condemnation over one another anymore. You may think of it that way because the first way it's used in verse 13 is in the negative. Therefore, let us not judge. Let us not sit in condemnation over one another anymore. But rather, make this decision. Evaluate it. Evaluate. Render a thoughtful decision, a careful, thoughtful decision in what What's the goal of that careful, thoughtful decision? Not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in your brother's way. And he's talking here in the matter of principles, in the matter of things that aren't commanded or prohibited. Don't judge one another so as to render condemnation, but rather carefully decide this. Carefully decide the way you exercise your liberty not to put a stumbling block in your brother's way. That's what he's saying. We're to evaluate our liberty to see if it causes a brother to, to stumble, literally. He's first is a stumbling block. Literally be offended in his weakness. So the first question Paul says to ask whenever you're exercising your liberty and your brother's good is, will it cause them to stumble? To stumble over and fall into sin? Will it hinder them in some way? He starts with the negative, and in our second responsibility, I'll show you the positive. The first responsibility to those who have liberty in a matter is you're to exercise it in a way that's for your brother's good and not his destruction. And he goes on to explain what that looks like. Look at verse 14. I know and I'm convinced by the Lord that there's nothing unclean in of itself. He doesn't say, take 
If it's going to cause your brother to stumble, take or be offended, take their position. I mean, he holds the line on the truth here. He says, I know and I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean in and of itself. He doesn't say it is unclean. You may have perfect liberty in that matter, but it may cause somebody else to, to stumble, to be a stumbling block. But to him who considers, who calculates it, who adds it up in his own mind, to be unclean to him it is unclean. And he tells us why, because they're not operating by faith. They'd be violating their conscience in that matter. He says, you heard liberty... No, nothing is unclean in and of itself. You may know that what you're doing, you have perfect liberty to do. Now, unclean in, in the vernacular here is, is something common. It's common versus holy. Holy was something set apart for the Lord's use. That which is common was unclean, meaning it was not for, for sacred use. And what Paul's saying here is that one time you thought there were only certain things that could be useful to God, but now all things are useful to God. At one point, using the common example, you couldn't eat certain animals. And now you can eat all the ham and bacon you want to, praise the Lord. They're both useful to the body. All things here are obviously interpreted within context. He's not saying the things elsewhere that God's forbidden. So he's not saying all things. He's not, not contradicting the Bible. He's not, when God says these things are evil, these things are wrong, Paul's now saying all things. They're not evil. They're not wrong. I mean, obviously there's context to everything. He's not including things that God has elsewhere forbidden. He's including the things that he set the context with in verse 1. Those things that are opinions. Those things that are, that are matters of conscience, like like food and, and days and those undefined things, those left to matters of the, of the conscience. Now, some things may be wiser than others, but this is a matter of sin or not sin. And while those things are not unclean in and of themselves, what makes them unclean is if you're condemned by your own conscience. You feel guilt, and if you do it, then you, it can drive you deeper. It's like the illustration of the pastor that was having a having a conference and he brings in a, a speaker that loves to loves to play golf and the, the conference is all about soul winning and evangelism. And the the speaker, you know, the pastor in his mind what we need to do all week is we need to pray, we need to go out and try to win people to Christ and, and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday we'll have the meeting. So Friday rolls around and the speaker wants to go play golf. And the, the pastor says, wow, what do I do? I, I don't think I should do that. I think we need to be doing something else, but you know, I want to honor my guest. And so he goes ahead and plays golf. And on the very first hole, the, the pastor is there, and he's getting ready to swing. And all of a sudden, from the other green, you know, somewhere else, bang, just knocks him cold. And when he comes to, the first thing he says is, I knew I shouldn't have played golf today. He violated his conscience. And in doing so, it, was, it had nothing to do with him playing golf or not playing golf. It had everything to do with him thinking he was disobeying the Lord. And because he thought he was disobeying the Lord, and he did violate that conscience, now he has committed sin. You see the distinction there? It has nothing to do with the playing of the golf. It's how you're evaluating that. And that's not even in a matter of, of right or wrong. But rebellion against your conscience, against what you believe to be God, is wrong. So don't violate your conscience. That's what he's saying there in the second part of that verse. Anything to be unclean considers anything to be unclean to him, it is unclean. If you believe it to be clean and you offend your brother and cause him to stumble over your liberty, you're not walking in, in love. Look at verse 15. I know that, and I'm convinced by the Lord that there's nothing in clean of itself. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in, in love. This 
this is the, the person who has the attitude that says, hey, it's unclean. It's clean. I don't care. Get over it. He's saying that's not walking in love. You, you can grieve him. To grieve means to hurt or pain or cause distress. You ever had that happen? You ever had pain caused by the liberty of, uh, of another brother? It's the same word that Peter uses, that was used by Peter when Jesus asked him a third time, Do you love me? Peter was grieved in his heart. Third time, you know my heart, Lord. I mean, you know that you're asking me, do I sacrificially love you? And you know that I know my actions didn't show sacrificial love when I denied you. You know that the best I can say is I phileo you. I, I love you in that way. And then Jesus says, do you phileo me? And, and Peter's grieved in his heart. That's the word that's used there. And God says that if you... If you do that knowingly, intentionally, that's not love, and you shouldn't do that. There are certain ways you restrict yourself as a believer. You don't do it because it would be sinful for you, but because it would grieve another brother. Spurgeon, whenever he went to preach in Geneva, it was the only time in his entire ministry where he wore a robe and a hat. And he did so out of love. Now, anybody who knows anything about Charles Spurgeon knows his great hatred for popery, the Catholic system. And so for Spurgeon to wear a robe and a hat, it was a huge deal. And he didn't mince words. He said, I did not feel very happy when I, when I had to come out in full canonicals. But the request was put to me in such a beautiful way that I could have worn the Pope's tiara if by doing so I could preach the gospel the more freely. I shall feel like running in a sack, but it will be for, for you. You ever do that? Do you think about grieving your brother before you operate in an area of, of liberty? We're also to evaluate our liberty, not only to see if it will cause somebody to stumble, but if it will cause them to be snared. Will it cause them to stumble? And then he also says, will it cause them to be snared? Verse 13, notice he uses two words here. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Two different words. Stumbling block is, is put in their way, causing them to fall. The second term is, is where we get scandal. Scandalon. It presents a picture of a trap. Trap ensnaring a, a victim. It's used of something that constitutes a temptation to sin. Literally be lured into sin. Those who have liberty in an area must not operate in a way that does that. You ask the question first, is it okay before God? And then second, will it lead my brother into sin? Those are two questions you have to ask yourself. It may be okay before God. But the second question you have to ask yourself is, how does it affect other brothers and sisters? You can, by your liberty, do something that somebody else would be overwhelmed by. And Paul says, you're not to say, well, I have liberty, that's their problem. That's not walking in, in love. We are to operate our liberty in light of our brother, not just in light of God. There's the vertical and there's the horizontal. Yeah, first, with God. You don't make the decisions of liberty based upon what other human beings think or don't think, what pleases them or doesn't please them. You make the decision of whether it's clean or unclean based upon God, but then you operate of whether you participate in it or not, in light of other brothers and sisters. Look at verse 15. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Well, now that really puts a, an emphasis on it, doesn't it? 
the contra- I mean, can you really contrast food and the death of Christ as if they're equated in some way? The word means complete devastation. It's it's used typically in the New Testament for eternal damnation. I mean, it's a strong word. Do not destroy, do not completely devastate with your food the one for whom Christ died. Do people in the church get on your nerves? Don't answer that. Not out loud anyway. I mean, when are there people that just grate on your nerves? Maybe... Maybe I grate on your nerves. I do on Tracy sometimes. But Jesus died for me. And He died for the other person that grates on your nerves and the person that you grate on their nerves. Jesus shed His blood for you. And if He would lay down His life for another person, then we should overlook whatever grates on our nerves, right? I mean, that's what He's saying here. For a piece of meat would you ruin another Christian for whom Christ gave his life. That's what he's saying. That's heavy. I mean, this is... You won't forsake missing a meal or something else for whatever another person when Christ forsook his life for them? You won't forsake preference or entertainment choices or temporal pleasures or whatever when Jesus laid down his very life? Why did Christ lay down his life? Because you deserved it? Because you were such a wonderful catch. God really wanted to send Jesus to get you in the kingdom. Is that what it was? There's nothing in me that attracted God's love. He loved me because God is love. And He paid for a hunk of junk whenever He got me. But He did so and made me a treasure. Christ did it because of His love, and love puts others ahead of ourselves. And when you do that, it's showing love. You're walking in love. And when you don't, it can bring blasphemy. Look at verse 16. Therefore, don't let your good be evil spoken of. I remember reading that as a young believer, totally misinterpreting it. Don't let your good, that which you conclude is okay, be evil spoken of because you harm your brother with it. That's what it means. Don't let what you conclude is okay. Don't let what you conclude as clean become something spoken of as evil because of the way you exercise it. And the way you exercise it hurts another Christian. I remember hearing the phrase over and over as a young believer thinking that, that it meant don't you know, be so holy in front of unbelievers that they ridicule the Lord. You know, don't be peculiar because then they'll think you're weird and then they won't want to come to Jesus. I thought that's what it meant. It has nothing to do with that. It says that you can live your Christian life in a way that's scandalous to unbelievers, but that's not because you're so holy or peculiar. You can live your life as scandalous to unbelievers because you scandalize believers with your liberty. That's what he's saying. He's talking about abusing your brother by claiming your rights before an unbeliever. This is where the word literally means evil means to blaspheme. Don't let your good be blasphemed. That's what it literally says. When an unbeliever sees a strong, liberated Christian abusing his freedom in Christ to harm to the harm of a weaker brother, he will conclude that Christianity is filled with unloving people. And that's scandalous. Why would I want to be part of that? And the reason that you don't do that is verse 17. Therefore, don't let your good be evil spoken of. Don't let what you approve be blasphemed because of the way that you handle it in the world... Why? Because the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's, it's righteousness, obedient, God-pleasing, living, peace, loving tranquility, joy, pleasure in God, and, and all of this comes from the Holy Spirit. That, that's real Christianity. Real Christianity is righteousness and peace and joy brought to us through the Holy Spirit. These other things are just ways in which 
we operate, we, we get to put those things on display. Um, look at verse 18. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God. The person who operates this way is pleasing to God and he's approved by men. You've got, again, you've got the vertical and the, the horizontal. If you operate this way, if you operate your liberty in a way, knowing that and convinced of the Lord that it's not unclean, if you operate in a way where what you approve is not blasphemed by unbelievers, because the kingdom of God is, is not in what you're approving to eat or drink, it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you operate in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, you serve Christ in these things, then you'll be pleasing to God, acceptable to God, and other people will look and say, hey, nothing blaspheme there. Approved. Means after careful examination, they'll see the reality of Christ in you. You think of a proverb, Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his... Be at peace with Him. Exactly right. I mean, Christianity works. We're the problem. <laughs> God's plan works. We're the problem in working it out. But this is in the Bible because God says that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You, you live this Christianity failing as you do, stumbling as you do, offending each other as you do, and you do that on the platform of justification. You're no longer being evaluated how you live your Christianity out. You're no longer evaluated are you right with God or not right with God on the way that, that we fumble and bumble through the Christian life. You're not evaluated by God on how you live out your Christianity. You've already been weighed in the balance and found wanting and Christ has already become your substitute. So you are, you are as a believer, uncondemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's your foundation. You're right with God. And because you're right with God, now you're living it out. And you live that out without fear of being judged by God. But you do live it out and you work it out and, and you make mistakes and you have errors and you confess and you repent and you apply the gospel of relationships in your own heart. And, and yet you do that on the platform of justification. Wouldn't it be horrible if your Christianity, the way you lived out your Christian life, was the basis of whether you're right with God or not? Catholicism? Salvation that you can lose? is all based upon that. Am I right with God? Am I not right with God? Have I confessed my sins? Am I not confessed my sins? Am I right with everybody else? I mean, those things matter to God. But you're secure in Christ and Him alone. And because of that security, that gives you the confidence and the joy and the power and the energy and even the desire to want to apply Romans 14 to life. You'll be pleasing to God and approved by, by others. Let me give you the second responsibility quickly. second responsibility of love and exercising liberty is to evaluate it in, in light of our brother's edification. In light of our brother's good and then their, their edification. Now, Look at number one and number two and notice the difference. I'm evaluating my liberty. It's true liberty. It's not sin. It's not that the other person is right and you're wrong and you shouldn't be doing it. You're evaluating your liberty in light of your brother's good. Will it bring them good? So it's not just relating to God, but it's relationship with others. And you're asking two questions. Will it cause them to to stumble or be snared. And now you're evaluating also in light of their growth, in light of their edification. So the first one's negative. Restrict your liberty, evaluate your liberty on the basis of whether it will hurt them. And now in number two, evaluate it in light of whether it will cause them to grow. Will this do harm to them or will it do good to them? Because the second part is building them up. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. You see that? 
Let's pursue the things which, which make for peace. Let's pursue the things which will keep harm from coming. And let's also pursue the things that edify. What's the word edify means? It's to build them up. It's to cause growth. You see the contrast there? Condemning and contempt, which we'll cover next week, brings disunity. Walking in love and liberty brings peace in the body. I mean, if we operated in our matters of liberty in this way, peace would be in the body. There wouldn't be contempt or, or contention. And yet flagrantly grieving and causing your brother to sin destroys them. Evaluating and restricting builds them up. He goes back to the same point again. Look at verse 20. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And watch the difference here. Look back at verse 15. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. So that's believer relationship. Now look over here in verse 20. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Salvation, sanctification. Don't destroy with food for the one for whom Christ died. Okay, there's the relationship. There's the salvation. And now he's talking about the work of God over here. And the work of God, yeah, includes salvation, but it also includes growth. It includes sanctification. So now he's talking about the growth. Don't cause them to sin or keep them from coming to Christ. And don't tear down their growing in their Christian life. Different from verse 15. If 15, it's ruining them. Here, it's tearing down the work of God. Verse 15 is the idea of causing them to fall into sin. Verse 20 is the idea of causing growth to stop. It's the work of God, saving and sanctifying, making us like His dear Son. He first tears down anything that exalts itself against Him. Self, sin, pride, brings consequences in her life. And then he, he grows us in salvation. The story of a young girl who accepted Christ. And she went for, applied for membership in a local church. And um, the church heard testimonies of people. They believed in regenerate church membership. And this little girl didn't know all of this. Young lady didn't know all the lingo. She's not like a little girl. She's a, you know, early teens, early twenties, somewhere around. She just, she didn't know all the Bible lingo, so she was struggling to try to explain to the membership committee salvation. And they're trying to do their job to listen to a clear testimony, so they don't allow somebody to come in the church that would believe that they're saved when they. When, when they're not and have a false assurance. And so the conversation went like this. Were, were you a sinner before you received the Lord Jesus into your life? Yes, sir, she replied. Well, are you still a sinner? To tell you the truth, the girl said, I feel I am a greater sinner than ever. Then what real change have you experienced? I don't quite know how to explain it, she said. Except... I used to be a sinner running after sin, and now that I'm saved, I'm a sinner running from sin. She was received into the fellowship of the church. (laughs) And she proved by her consistent life that she was truly converted. Are you a sinner running after sin? You're all sinners. So am I. Are you a sinner running after sin, or are you a sinner running from sin? And salvation makes the distinction, changes the desires. Do you love God or do you love sin? And while the change is hard to put in words, it's a process and growth happens. And you can buy your liberty. Stunt that growth. I'm out of time. I'm not going to keep any longer. I'll finish the rest tonight. Some good stuff in here about whatever is not of faith is sin, and we'll talk about what that means tonight. 
You have vertical liberty in Christ, but you exercise it horizontally. And you do so in love. And I just end where Paul brings us to twice in this, in this chapter. He causes us to evaluate what God has done for us. The death of Christ and the work of Christ. The work of God. And our love mimicking the love of, of Christ. And He loved us, isn't He? During the 17th century, Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England, sentenced a soldier to be shot for his crimes. Guilty man. The execution was to take place at the ringing of the evening curfew bell. However, the bell did not sound. Shoot the man for his crimes at the ringing of the curfew bell, and yet they waited for the bell and the bell didn't sound. The soldier's fiancé had climbed up into the belfry and clung to the great clapper of the bell to prevent it from striking. And when she was summoned by Cromwell to give an account for her actions, she wept and showed him her bruised and bleeding hands from where she grabbed hold of the clapper and Cromwell's heart was touched. And he said, Your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. Curfew shall not ring tonight. When the great bell of God's wrath was set to ring for you, Christ took hold of the clapper in the bell on the cross and bruised and battered went before the Father. And the Father said, The ones you love shall live because of your sacrifice. And for them, curfew shall not ring tonight. And when the thunderclap of God's wrath comes, it will not be coming for you if you're a believer. But if you don't know Jesus, curfew will ring. And it's coming sooner than any of us thinks, I believe. But there's one who has laid down his life in love for you. If you will but repent and believe, it will not sound because the bell has already rung for Jesus and he took the punishment and rose from the dead victoriously over life.